So what you're saying is that we've underestimated Russia and what they plan to do, and we're overestimating China in a nutshell. That's right, in a nutshell. Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyricus Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 40th episode is Paul Dibb speaking to us from Canberra, Australia. Paul, welcome to the Hale Report. It's been far too long. Let me tell you a bit about our guest. Born in England, Paul Dibb is an Australian strategist, academic, and former defense intelligence official. As director of the Defense Intelligence Organization in the 1980s, Paul made a permanent mark on Australian defense strategy through writing the 1986 Review of Australia's Defense Capabilities, known as the Dibb Report. That same year, he also wrote a book, The Soviet Union, The Incomplete Superpower. That was a very busy year for you, Paul. He then then made a very successful transition from spook to academic. He is currently professor of strategic studies at the Strategic and Defense Studies Center that is part of the Australian National University, or ANU in Canberra, which is where I first met him. Maybe 20 years ago now, Paul, is that right? Yes, I think it's at mm-hmm. least 20 years ago. At least 20. We're not saying exactly. <laughs> Recently, when I was searching for information about the war in Ukraine, I watched his ANU lecture this past August on Russia, as well as a panel discussion in 2016, where he effectively predicted where we are today. It prompted me to reach out to Paul to discuss his views on Russia and Ukraine today, his subject of study for many decades, as well as the Pacific and his country, Australia. So before we begin, Paul, you know I always begin my podcast by asking my guests how they became interested in the subjects that became their life's work. How did you as a small boy in West Yorkshire become interested in global affairs? Well, it's a long journey. Um, My stepfather was a Yorkshire coal miner. My uncle was a Yorkshire coal miner. My cousin was a Yorkshire coal miner. And by the way, later in life as a spook operating against the Soviet embassy in Canberra, I was able to, to, to say to Soviet diplomats, don't talk to me about the working class. I am the working class. <laughs> so I, Wonderful. I, I, I went to a state uh, grammar school. It had been a private school. And then after the war, when Labour came to power in 1945 and Churchill was defeated, um, they became free. And in order to get into this grammar school, which was one of those modern English grammar schools founded in 1577. <laughs> um, and all the, the teachers in sixth form, that's, you know, ages you know, 
pupils aged 17, 18, 19, all the teachers are honours graduates in their own subject. And um, I took a liking to geography. I'd never been, obviously, overseas. Um, by the time I got to university, I'd only been to London once. Um, but one of the essays in the sixth form uh, when I was 17, 18, was about uh, Russia. And I fell in love with the exotic names of places that I couldn't pronounce, like Dnipropetrovsk in Ukraine. Um, it goes under a different name now, of course. Um, and that sparked my interest in Russia. And at university, I had a good fortune to have a senior lecturer from Sydney University. This was in Nottingham in the Midlands of England, whose speciality was the Soviet Union. He wrote a book called The Geography of the Soviet Union. So that's how it all started. How it sort of, how I ended up in Australia very quickly is I applied to get a job in the British Civil Service in what was then known, by the way, believe it or not, still known as the Colonial Office. <laughs> mm. we, we still had colonial possessions. And I still got the letter of rejection, which said to P. Dib Esquire, uh, Mr. Secretary McLeod regrets to inform you, you've been un un unsuccessful in the application for a position with the Colonial Office, second paragraph. Furthermore, it is unlikely in any future selection that you might be successful. I am your humble, obedient servant. And wow! <laughs> finally, I was by Hopefully this Hopefully, they're sorry now. <laughs> well, look, um, 30 years later, when I was Deputy Secretary of Defence, I got my own back on the British and the Eton, Harrow, Oxford, Cambridge types that you're well aware of. Yes. So there's the background. So it was a, a love of geography that and and the t and teachers who were so influential who opened the world to you that's, serendipity. that's a lovely story yeah serendipity serendipity yeah well speaking of geography we're we're going to be talking about two areas that have been maybe misnamed and i wonder what you think about them um eurasia uh and also the indo-pacific are those real areas or how do you see that what's the conceptual framework for that. For don't those. like Eurasia. Um, mm -hmm. I don't recognize where it begins and ends. Does it, uh, does it begin for Russia at the Ural, Ural Mountains? Um, where does it end? It smacks of geopolitics in the old-fashioned way. You may recall um, in British history, um, at the time of the First World War, there was a, uh, a geopolitician called Samuel Mackinder, and he pronounced that that country that ruled what he called the world island, that's what you and I would call Europe, extending across Asia to the Pacific. He who rules the world island will rule the world. And, you know, that was very fashionable, particularly when the Soviets were into the Second World War. It's not a term I can nail down. Asia-Pacific... I've worked in the Australian National University on and off um, uh, from the um, late 60s onwards um, in the Research School of Pacific and Asian Studies. The one I don't like is the more trendy one right now, which is obligatory in Canberra, Indo-Pacific. Well, where the hell does the Indo-Pacific begin and end? Does it include the East Coast of Africa and the West Coast of America and Latin America? That's a big chunk of the world. I prefer Asia Pacific. 
Indo-Pacific is a stretch too far, particularly as a defence planner. Australia can't possibly project military power from the east coast of Africa to the west coast of America and Latin America. And it's not clear really where India's uh, loyalties lie either. No, it so it's kind of an attempt to include them, but it, I'm not sure they've accepted the invitation to the party. I think that's a very good point. Well, I wanted, as an expert um, over the years in, um, in Russia in particular, and by the way, I first visited Russia in 1964 when I was a little girl, Did and you? I studied Russian in high school because that was trendy at the time. I didn't know too. that. I first yes. visited in 1968 and was one of the first Australians to travel right across Siberia to, uh, uh, I couldn't get into Vladivostok, of course, it was closed. Right. I, I always wanted to take the uh, Trans-Siberian Railway. Yeah. But so maybe still someday, we'll see how things go. I think what we should maybe talk about now is the clear and present danger to the world um, in terms of what's going on in Ukraine. And I watched your presentation at ASPE in 2016, which was really excellent. And to say that I think that your, mar your remarks were prescient would be to downgrade them. They were absolutely remarkable. And also then how you explained where we went wrong in the, the, the uh, management of the relationship with the United States in particular and Russia. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Look, I got, although I first went to uh, Soviet Union, as I've just said, in 1968, um, that was um, a, a, as an early academic looking at the Soviet economy, and particularly that of Siberia. I didn't get intensively into it until 1974, by which time I was a member of the National Assessment Staff working for the National Intelligence Committee. And you know, serendipity again. My boss, who'd been our ambassador in Jakarta, and you will recall for Australia, that there is no more important country than Indonesia if push exactly. ever comes to shove. Should exactly. they become an Islamic military government, we've got a serious problem. Um, so my boss, the position, the two previous incumbents of head of the National Assessment Staff uh, were from the Department of Foreign Affairs. They were diplomats. He took a gamble on me at the ripe age of 34 as head of the National Assessment Staff. And I think I was totally out of control for four or five years. I had full colonels and full Navy captains working for me, academic in residence working for me, and some relatively young but relatively senior um, uh, bureaucrats. Um, I was the expert for that period from 74 to 81 in the Australian intelligence and indeed uh, defense organization on the Soviet Union. The, as I mentioned to you before um, we went on air, um, the issue of America and the Soviet Union, I was going to Washington once a year to talk at the highest level, which I'll come to in a moment, about on the subject of Pine Gap near Alice Springs in the center of Australia, which was and still is America's most powerful intelligence platform in the world, outside of the United States. It was so senior that in my late 30s as, as head of the National Assessment Staff, I would see the director CIA, the director NSA, the director DIA, the deputy secretary of defense, and the deputy secretary of state. 
that would, should tell you everything. And by the way, as a quick aside, uh, on one of those visits, I can't remember who was the director of CIA. It may have been an admiral. For my only time in my life, I go into the director of CIA's office. This is late 70s. And he closes the curtains and puts on the radio. And we're in the Holy of Holies, the director of CIA's office. And he's really fidgety about somebody intercepting and listening. But those talks taught me a lot about the Soviet Union. It gave me insights. And let me give you one quick example to, so your audience can understand just how important this facility was and is. And this is in the public domain, says he very, very carefully. So I go on my first trip uh, to Pine Gap. I fly on the CIA station chief's own plane, by the way, to Alice Springs. He became a very close friend of mine. He, the CIA station chief was a man called Corley Wonus. How could you ever forget his name? He was not a spook in terms of covert collection. He was the first and only head of CIA at that point in Australia. Who, who was from the scientific and technical area, and he had helped design the Pine Gap satellite. So I go with him into Pine Gap, and the CIA uh, chief officer at the facility says to me, welcome, Paul, this is your first visit. We know your keen interest in the Soviet Union. We want you to listen to this. He then pasted through a conversation between the head of the Soviet Northern Fleet at Murmansk to the head of the Soviet Navy in Moscow. That's how powerful that organization was. Let me repeat, that is in the public domain. You see how careful I'm being. So that's how all that started. Doesn't that make Australia a target, having Pine Gap? Yes. And is that a concern that you have? And I remember a story that Prime Minister Whitlam actually was worried about this back in, when was he Prime Minister? 75 um, to, um, so, sorry, 72 to 75. 75. So this is the same time frame yeah, yeah. that you're going there. Yeah. And that he, because of his opposition, you know, he was the only Prime Minister, I believe, that was dismissed by the Governor General. Correct. And that that was caused by his opposition to Pine Gap. Is that in the public domain or is that, sure it do is. you think that is a true story? Yeah. yeah. The main reason he was sacked was not Pine Gap. Pine Gap was a background issue. The main reason was the complete um, economic irresponsibility of Australia's first Labour government since the Second World War. They'd been in opposition from 45 to 72 and they were out of control. They looked upon us in the intelligence agencies as the enemy. Mm -hmm. um, I was cautioned as head of the National Assessment Staff not to write national assessments that talked about communist insurgency in the Philippines and Thailand when we knew very well, despite what Mao Zedong was talking to our very new ambassador, and Mao was denying that the Chinese were supporting still communist insurgencies. Mm -hmm. We had signals intelligence, absolute ironclad views that they were still going on with it. So there were difficult times. You, you, you're partly right about Pine Gap. Um, the people in Canberra at that time, and even now, who had that clearance, and the people, by the way, even in Washington, had that clearance, was extremely limited. Many people in Washington would get the product, but they didn't know where it came from. 
And uh, when you have a fairly left-wing Labour government under Whitlam, they were very suspicious of all that. And it got to the stage where a very senior CIA person said to our opposite, its opposite number in Australia, internal security, that is ACO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, this threatens to undermine the ANZUS Treaty with the United States. Your Prime Minister berating the fact that CIA is running this station and so on. So it was a big issue. As you know, later on, when I was working for Kim Beasley as Defence Minister, we fixed up that issue of um, uh, it being not a CIA base, but a joint American-Australian intelligence facility. So back to geography and Russia, um, one of the things that you've said about Russia is that it's a prisoner of its history and its geography. And also you said that, um, back, this is at least five years ago, you said that Putin should not be underrated. That... Uh, and that um, he was going to be a while, around for a while. So how does this fit into what has happened and this new kind of world order that we have, where there's this split with Russia and China moving closer together, and then us moving closer together as well, Australia, Japan. How do you see that whole, this is a completely new era that I think we've embarked upon. I agree with you. Look, it's, um, I still get many things really wrong, by the way. Um, on the 24th of February last year, I said to my wife, who used to work with me in defense, in uh, defense uh, international relations area, I said to her, the Russians will be in Kiev in, in, in three days, Rhonda. <laughs> I got that really wrong. <laughs> by the way, so did your chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Exactly. In the Congress in closed session, he said 72 hours, same deal. So look, I, I, I'm not always right. But it, other than um, Australia, where I've now lived for over 60 years, there's no country I, I know better than Russia. By the way, uh, I am now barred. I'm, I'm on the, the barred list to enter Russia, um, mm. a list of um, 20 people issued by the Russian embassy in August last year. Um, that didn't happen at the height of the Cold War. I used to visit Russia as a declared intelligence officer to talk about our concerns about the Soviet naval presence at Cameron Bay in Vietnam and so on. So I'm being hit even harder than in the Cold War. Look, starting at the very top, in my time in Australia of 60 years, I've never known a time for us that is more uncertain where aggression from China, the bullying of us, the coercion of us, the threatening of us, uh, including our um, uh, P-8 Poseidon armed reconnaissance um, aircraft and shining dangerous laser beams into the eyes of our commanders on warships and so on, and threatening to have a military base in the Solomon Islands nearby, and an island very well known historically to America, the Battle of Guadalcanal, you may recall. This is more serious, and you've hit the nail on the head, if I might say so. Too many academics who've had no experience in policy totally underrate this Russian de facto alliance with China. 
don't get me wrong. It is not NATO. It is not Article 5. You know, an attack on one is an attack on all. It's not that at all. But it's, it's a relationship of totalitarian convenience where the leaders of these two authoritarian states, both absolute leaders, absolute leaders, um, see that the rest of the world is against them. NATO Europe included, headed by, of course, your country, the United States, Japan. As you know, I'm very close to these days, our defense relations with Japan, which is also an alliance in all but name between Australia and Japan. And this means that compared with the 10, 20 years ago, when you will recall very well that economics was in control, the Soviet Union was dead, Reagan's evil empire had been humiliated and was disintegrating, and all that mattered was economics, international trade, economic interdependence, and to use the current lingo, supply chain dependence and delivery in 24 hours, that sort of stuff. You are much right. more expert than me on that. Um, look how different it now is. Front and center now, and that's why we're ordering, uh, trying to get nuclear powered submarines, is we've never feel so threatened since the Japanese were knocking on the northern door of um, uh, Australia in the Second World War. It is a totally and utterly changed world. I was amazed to hear this story recently in Canberra that the Chinese ambassador criticized the Japanese ambassador um, for what he said. Is, is that anything that you had ever imagined before happening? <laughs> Well, look, I imagine all sorts of insults from the Chinese communists. I still call them chai coms. You may not remember that word, Chinese communists. As I think from China, it's the Chinese nationalists on Taiwan. By the way, I've been to Taiwan four times now in the last eight years, and on each occasion I've met the then president. Um, I'm, I know I can say this too. We go back a long way. Unlike today's Ukraine, Taiwan is a vigorous democracy with the freedom of press, no corruption, unlike Ukraine, yes, and with an independent judiciary, unlike Ukraine. Don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, underrating Ukraine. They've been marvelous fighters this last 12 months, and Zelensky is to be admired. But we could have all seen this Ukrainian thing coming, uh, and we didn't in the, precisely the way we should have. Coming back to the disintegration of the, the Soviet Union. So you mentioned my book, The Incomplete Superpower. Um, I finished writing that in 84, but in those days, you may remember, it took 18 months to two years to get a book published. And, um, right. and mine was published by the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London that was headed by an Australian. He had to take a guess that, that it would not offend the United States because his institute, amongst others, got funding out of the United mm -hmm. States. But right. he, took a, he took a risk on this book. It was published in 86, and two years later, I was in Washington uh, talking to the deputy director of CIA, Robert Gates, who had been the national intelligence officer for the Soviet Union, fluent in Russian. I've known him for decades. In 86, let me see. 87 or 88, he says to me, by this time I'm Director of Defense Intelligence, Paul, the agency has read your book, The Incomplete Superpower. You are so wrong. The Soviet Union, in the agency's view, 
is poised to outstrip America in every single aspect of military power. Two years later, down goes the Berlin Wall, and two years after that, I can't sing my favorite Beatles song back in, back in the USSR. <laughs> and that's the way it was, you know. Paul, right. you understand, um, you know, the Soviet Union is poised to outstrip America in every single aspect. Now, when you think that the whole of the American intelligence community did nothing else but study the Soviet Union, they got it wrong. And then what they got wrong really badly, to come back to your uh, uh, initial point, was they just did not accept that expanding the borders of NATO to knocking on the Russian heartland would cause the Russians to, as soon as they recovered somewhat after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which we underestimated impact on the Russian people, the GDP collapsed by 40% in one year flat, one year flat. Mm -hmm. They were begging for a Marshall Fund aid from the United States and the hardliners like Richard Pearl and others in, in, in Washington were whispering in the ear of Reagan and the, and the other presidents. Not to do it, right? Do, yeah. do not do it. And the, right. What the, a mistake. The, the then Secretary of Treasury, whose name Nicholas was Brady. Nick Brady. Brady. Mm -hmm. You know from your reading, he actually said to George Bush Sr. as president, no, we should not have a Marshall Plan. Our aim would be is to see Russia disintegrate to being a third-rate power. Well, here we are right now, aren't we? And you know what what you said that Robert Gates said about Russia? Substitute the word China as being in superior in every way, and and all of that. It's exactly the same thing. And this wishing for these powers to become weak countries, we better worry that we get what we wish for because it makes things worse, not better. You're so right about China, and you know that country a lot better than me. I first went to China in 1978, just after the Deng Xiaoping you know, easing of mm -hmm. problems. Uh, I, I was invited by the Foreign Affairs Bureau of the PLA as a declared intelligence officer, head of the National Assessment Staff, the Deputy Head of Mission at the Chinese Embassy, Madame Jeannie, I can see her now, she died a long time ago. Uh, her husband was the ambassador. He was rather thick. She was the Deputy Head of Mission and she was the intelligence officer. I see. Uh, and she would quiz me about the Soviet military and I was allowed to brief her reasonably fully, not sensitive stuff. They knew nothing about the Soviet military, the Chinese at that stage. So I get into uh, um, uh, Beijing in, uh, in August of 78. I cross the border from Hong Kong. I walk across the border and put my foot into Communist China's territory on People's Liberation Army Day, 1st of August, 1978. We did that deliberately. Mm -hmm. I then uh, talk to the uh, spooks of the Chinese uh, military, and they take me to the fallout shelters for the leadership. And they asked my view and I say, hey, I'm not an engineer, but and it was impressive, you know, mm -hmm. uh, self-contained air supply, water, food, and it was pretty deep. They were shocked when I said, they said, what do you think? And I said, you're wasting your time. If you've got a map of Siberia, yes, they showed me. I said, you see that place there, Novosibirsk, I've been there, New Siberia. 
Nearby is one of the main intercontinental ballistic missile sites for the SS-18, codename Satan. It has a single warhead of 20 megatons, 20 million tons of TNT, 20 megatons compared with Hiroshima's 15,600 tons of TNT equivalent. So kilotons, not megatons. I said to them, that warhead alone will penetrate this and you'll come out to nothing except radioactivity. They're absolutely gobsmacked. And so despite their so-called alliance with the Soviet Union, you recall in the late 50s and early 60s, do you right. remember the, the lips and the teeth? Well, the, yes. teeth, the teeth bit the lips, didn't they? Mm -hmm. and, That's right. And the Soviets would not help China to build nuclear weapons. So quickly on that visit, towards the end, I'm with the uh, head of the um, Shanghai region, a Lieutenant General equivalent. They had no badges of rank, by the way, in those days. No badges of rank. And it, they made me sit through the opera, The East is Red, and so on. Next morning, he says, we've got a surprise for you, Paul Dean. What is it, General? We're going to take you to our submarine building yard, and you can inspect how we build submarines. We're going to put you on one of our submarines. I knew, Eric, that was a major transparency and confidence-building measure. As soon as I go back to Canberra, I said, we need to exchange military attaches, which we did in 18 months flat. Current experts in our uh, intelligence and policy communities say to me, these days, Paul, there's no day, no way somebody like that position you had would be invited by the Chinese to inspect their submarine building yard. Look how the world has changed. Confidence building measures and transparency. On Chinese military, you are well, so we right. Used to, Sorry. What I was going to say is the same is true of the US and uh, Russia. Before we had transparency and visits of nuclear yeah. facilities, as I yeah. understand. Yeah. So that there was a deterrence program, and now there's nothing like that, which makes it more dangerous. So that was just my comment. Thank you. I'm hearing exactly the same thing in our own intelligence community as I heard about the Soviet Union at the height of its power. Remember Robert Gates? You know, the Soviet Union is poised to outstrip. Right. What I'm seeing now is stuff about the breathless commentary about Believe it or not, this is from somebody in one of our um, uh, uh, publicly available policy institutes. The latest Chinese nuclear attack submarine, Paul, is quieter than the Virginia class. And I looked at this person and said, what have you been smoking? You know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you... And you've never had the clearance for covert submarine operations, which I had when we were operating against the Soviet Navy, and which when Dick Cheney was vice president in his office in the White House told me in 2002, Paul, we'll never forget what your submarines did for us in the Cold War. And I said to this person um, uh, who'd said that the, the latest Chinese uh, nuclear attack submarine was quieter than Virginia, I said, you have no idea. The Chinese cannot detect American submarines. It is, you know, it, I mean, even the public domain, the Pentagon says that China has weak deep water ASW capability. And we're having the same thing about, you know, the latest stealth bomber. So what you're saying is that we've underestimated Russia 
and what they plan to do. And we're overestimating China in a nutshell. That's right, in a nutshell. And their capabilities. And their capabilities. I mean, look, just coming back to submarines, which is a hot topic in Canberra right now, as you know, um, the issue there is that the Chinese submarines uh, learned most of their quietness from um, uh, Soviet submarines, which even at the height of the Cold War were relatively noisy. And we underestimated Russia's intentions too, Paul, right? Um, today I read something from uh, the Ukrainian defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, and he said, we're carrying out NATO's mission today. They aren't shedding their blood, we're shedding ours. That's why they're required to supply us with weapons. Wow. So is this a proxy war? It's amazing that he said that. It, it is. It just stopped me in my tracks and I thought, is this an admission that this is a proxy war between NATO, in other words, the United States, and Russia that we've embarked on? How did this happen? Why did Russia step into this void? I'm sure that's the way Vladimir Vladimirovich uh, Putin sees it. Let's remember, he says once a KGB man, always a KGB mm -hmm. man. He was not senior in the KGB. He was right. a lieutenant colonel. And he was in Dresden, East Germany. Yeah, yeah. But that's where his love is, you know. Right. The sword and the shield was the motto of the KGB. In fact, um, uh, the, the situation uh, with regard to... Putin and Ukraine. Um, it, it, from my point of view, it started in 2006. I had ignored Russia from 1991 because, as I said earlier, I didn't recognize what the hell had happened and I was too busy with Australian defense policy. But in 2006, I think it was the editor of the American Interest, not the National Interest, the American Interest, a more moderate um, uh, journal, Adam, right. Garf Adam Garfunkel was the editor. He's just written to me like a, a week ago about oh, like you. Mm -hmm. He'd seen he'd seen my podcast on uh, that, you, that you had seen, and he reminded me. He said, "Paul, I encourage you to write about uh, uh, an article in I think it was August two thousand and six called The Bear Is Back,' in which I said um, we're going to regret this issue of NATO expansion." and how it's seen in Russia. And the big issue is going to be that Russia will not accept Ukraine as an independent country. And if there's any area in which um, we might have military problems, it's going to be Russia and Ukraine. Now, even so, I didn't think it would be as bad as the situation we're now in. And for the Ukrainian mm -hmm. minister to mm -hmm. say, this is a NATO operation, that will really get Putin going even worse. And, you know, if he's really cornered, there are mm -hmm. some silly people in Australia talking about, we need to see Russia decisively defeated. I know what they're trying to say, but you cannot decisively defeat a country with 1,540 strategic nuclear warheads. You cannot do that. This is not an excuse for Russia. Are they the only country that could actually destroy the United States? I believe that's right. You you believe correctly. Because of their nuclear weapons. Yeah. China currently, although um, the Pentagon latest re annual report on China just a couple of months ago uh, says that um, China is pushing ahead very ambitiously with building um, ICBM silos, as you well know, up in the 
um, uh, northern areas uh, of China. Currently, it only has about 300 strategic warheads. Uh, let me repeat, you know, America and Russia both have 1,500 deployed. And by the way, both America and Russia have another 4,000 strategic warheads in reserve or being stored. So, you know, we're looking still at 5,500 strategic nuclear warheads owned by both Russia and uh, America. Quickly, when the Soviet Union was disintegrating, um, uh, the George Bush senior uh, uh, administration of America was very keen to stop Russian weapons in now what had become independent countries, Belarus, um, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, falling into the wrong hands. Ukraine agreed with that, and the agreement that both Russia and America gave to Ukraine was you had your strategic nuclear warheads to the Russians, and your, your border, borders will be sacrosanct. Can you imagine, Zelensky's never said this, if he'd have kept his 1,900 strategic nuclear warheads right now, Russia would not be invading him. Exactly. And it also means that after Libya as well, um, what are the possibilities of denuclearizing North Korea? Zero. Zero. Absolutely zero. Yeah, you're right. By the way, the Russians... Yeah, to give up your weapons, look what happened. Yeah. Exactly that. And by the way, the Soviets so distrusted their colleagues in the Ukrainian Republic of the Soviet Union that the ICBM silos um, were not peopled, as far as I recall, by uh, Ukrainian cit um, citizens, even, even very senior Communist Party members. The warheads were kept separate from the um, missile and guarded by the KGB. So I guess the question is, how did we get to this place from you know the days of, of Gorbachev and Reagan? How did this, I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of amazing, the backward, you know, progression. If, just to do a little counterfactual history, if we had created, if the neocons had not been able to get their way and we had created, maybe I think Gorbachev was asking for $100 billion yeah. compared to the amount of money that we're putting into Ukraine right now, yeah. um, that would have been a really good investment Yes. So do you think that that would have made a difference if we had treated Russia in the way, which was, after all, former ally, not a former enemy in that way, um, the way that we treated Germany, would the outcome, in your view, have been completely different? Look, it's difficult to do those with hindsight, you know, uh, analyses, but right. my, my instinct mm -hmm. is um, uh, America totally underestimated that Gorbachev was for real. Let me repeat, even at the time of Reykjavik, where you recall that Reagan and Schultz were discussing with Gorbachev, Gorbachev's proposal for a complete nuclear disarmament of strategic nuclear weapons. And of course, you had people on the far right in Washington, like Richard Pearl and Robert Gates, saying this is all a front. Gorbachev is, is, is a hardline communist. They're trying to con us. And you recall, I think it was three o'clock in the morning at Reykjavik, mm -hmm. Schultz comes out and faces the assembled media, one of whom was a very good Australian journalist friend of mine. 
He said, Schultz was white in the face and looked at the audience and said, we failed. We failed to, to get that sort of agreement. I think, you know, from an American point of view, to be fair, there was a concern that this was not, as we Australians would say, it was not fair dinkum, it was not the truth. Um, the fact is that there was an opportunity then to, as you've implied, to have a Marshall plan like America had under General Marshall to rebuild very quickly um, uh, West Germany, as you know. I mean, it was on its feet in two to three years flat. From the Soviet point of view, Mm -hmm. The whole damn country disintegrated. Their military suddenly, you know, uh, was rotting away. And uh, even though Putin was a junior KGB officer, then working in a dodgy, corrupt area of advice, government advice, in what was then um, uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, he remembers all this stuff and the humiliation. Um, people begging on the streets. I saw this myself as late as the year 2000. Um, the, the humiliation was enormous, and it still grinds. So very quickly, um, uh, Putin's view on all this is whether we agree or not. You know, as a good intelligence officer, you need to get into the mind of your adversary. Putin says the following, based on his KGB background. We were humiliated when the Soviet Union disintegrated. We will never forget that and there will be a price for the West to pay. Secondly, we've told you not to expand the borders of NATO. Now it's on our doorstep. He doesn't say this, but I'll say this. Uh, very, yes, you know, I'm a geographer. So the nearest, uh, until Finland becomes a member of NATO, the nearest um, NATO border uh, to, to Russia is the Estonian border, where there is a NATO uh, jet fighter capable airfield. The distance from the eastern border of NATO, that is Estonia, to St. Petersburg is 120 kilometers. I think that's about 17 miles. I can tell you if right now yeah, we had- An hour's trip. An hour's trip. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you right now, even for dear old Australia, if we had Indonesian Sukhoi 35s an hour's trip away, we would react. And we totally underestimated that. Russia has no natural borders except, you know, the the, the, the northern fleet, which, you know, is icebound part of the year, Vladivostok, which has to be cleared with icebreakers. And the one that they really focus on is the Baltic in the north, which Peter the Great got for Russia by defeating the Swedish Empire. And guess what? The Black Sea, which Putin is now quoting, this is what... Peter the Great wanted to do after conquering the Baltic. And, you know, you don't have to agree with him, but the issue is his bottom line, his red line in my view is he wants a written international agreement signed by Russia and um, America representing NATO, that NATO will never ever allow Ukraine to be a member of NATO. That cannot be delivered by the West in my view, very we're far from that. So now that we've gotten into this place, right, which seems so, you know, hopeful um, in the 90s, and now we're here where we've got an actual hot war going on in Europe, something yeah. that was probably unimaginable to most people, how will this end? Um, you've written saying that there are four possible outcomes. I'm wondering if you could share those with us. 
If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Okay. One outcome is as unlikely as it appears at present. I think the Russian military have performed abysmally. I think Putin is interfering as if he was a general in tactical decision-making. And by the way, I hope that Xi Jinping is watching the poor performance of the Russian military, because you and I know, and you know better than me, China's military suffers from exactly the same problems as the Russian military. No NCOs, no, um, right. yeah, no NCOs, central command where generals go to the front line and get killed, um, conscription of troops that in China's case have never seen a shot fired in anger since they did not teach Vietnam a lesson in 1979. And tell me if I'm wrong, with the same problems of corruption of logistics supply and military production and so on. So for Russia, um, that's been a dismal performance. Let's guess they turn it around. Uh, Barry Poston, uh, an American uh, expert, has written a piece recently for Foreign Affairs called uh, The Russia Rebound, I think it's called. Um, look, I cannot exclude that as unlikely as it appears at present with Ukraine uh, having victory after victory. But let's presume Russia does win. That would be an absolute and total utter disaster because that would make the czar of all the Russias, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, so cocky, so self-assured that the following countries would then need to watch out. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Kazakhstan. And I don't say that lightly. Um, the, the other one is that uh, Ukraine wins. What do we mean by win? Well, Zelensky says, um, his bottom line is all the occupiers, troops, have to get out of Ukrainian territory. And of course, he defines Ukrainian territory as the agreement that was made, um, I think it was the Minsk Agreement or something in 1994, um, b between America and Russia about um, nuclear weapons and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so he think I, I interpret Zelensky's claim as, and that includes the Russians getting out of Crimea, Donetsk and Lugansk. I think Putin's bottom line is, no, he won't get out of there. The loss of face, because he's created them and publicly and authorized them as integral domestic republics and territory of Russia. So there's the two extremes, both of which seem unlikely. Uh, the other ones are some sort of variation of some sort of diplomatic solution. Um, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff a couple of months ago in Washington uh, talked about encouraging discussions. Look, all I can say at present, there is no sign from Putin. He won't even recognize that Zelensky is the president of Ukraine. Why? Because there is no such place. You know, Putin wrote a piece last June, well, had it written for him, um, 7,000 words of raving about Russian and um, Ukrainian history. We are one country, one faith, one people. Well, we all know the Ukrainians now are going to hate and are content for Russia for all time ahead that we can see.
So I find it hard to imagine a diplomatic solution. I think that what 2023 heralds for us is a bloody, nasty, long drawn out slugfest uh, between these two powers, just old fashioned military overwhelming use of power as long as they can sustain it. The, the issue is what is the risk of it escalating to the use of tactical nuclear weapons? Putin more recently, he's, he's alluded to that umpteen times this last 12 months. More recently, just a month or so ago, he talked more reasonably about he did not see that happening. But the fact is, my personal view is he cannot afford to be seen as being humiliated. Let's remember this man, Putin, does not have what the Soviet Communist Party leadership had, a Politburo, a political bureau of what you and I would call ministers of the inner circle, 10 or a dozen of them, uh, advising him. You remember Khrushchev was overthrown by the Politburo for his extreme and, and, and ill-advised um, international issues, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is no Politburo to discipline Putin, and that really worries me. And secondly, and finally, do we have really good information, including from the CIA and the NSA, do we have an agent or devices inside the Kremlin? I believe not. America certainly didn't have one inside the Kremlin, as far as I was concerned, in the Cold War. So we need to be careful, including in intelligence assessments, by saying, we, America, we, CIA, believe this is the view of the, of the Russian, of the Soviet leadership. How do you know? How do you know? And that leads us into the bottom line, trying to see a solution that resolves things for both sides, not just Russia and Ukraine, but NATO and, and, and Russia, I find it very hard to imagine any such progress in diplomacy. I hope I am really wrong. You know, it seems that American foreign policy since Vietnam has really been about regime change. And is, is that... You know, and we always think that if we get rid of the Shah of Iran, for example, that there'll be somebody better. But yeah, yes, there's never anybody better. Yeah, yeah. Look, <laughs> so, you're you're so right, uh, particularly about Iran. Look at it; it's a grotesque sort of extreme Islamic dictatorship. Uh, look at why I'm, you know, uh, well, the Russians got or Iraq. Or yeah. Iraq or Afghanistan, you know. Uh, oh, look, the Soviet Union got defeated in Afghanistan after nine years. We Americans will show you how it's done. <clears throat> no, you didn't. Or Iraq, as you say. Do you think that uh, Brexit in the United Kingdom and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan emboldened Putin? Yes. In any way to do yes. what he did in Ukraine? Yes. Mm -hmm. When Me you too. read his speeches, yeah. When you read his speeches, which we all do, they're raves and he raves on and on and on. He thinks he's an expert on history. Look, I imagine him sat in what's uh, one of the inner chambers of the old medieval Kremlin. There's a room called the Faceted Chamber, which I think, from memory, is where Ivan the Terrible murdered his son. So let's pretend that my guess is right. There Putin is. Um, we believe he's got girlfriends, but he's certainly not married any longer. He's increasingly isolated. Do you remember 
the um, two-mile-long dining table between him and Macron, the president of France. You know, he's so scared of getting COVID. That was bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Even more bizarre was the morning at five o'clock in the morning, Moscow time, when he had his Security Council advisors uh, together for him to announce the invasion, sorry, the limited military operation of Ukraine. And he he asked the head of Russia's intelligence community um, to, to talk. And this bloke is seriously nervous and stuttering. And Putin says, oh, for heaven's sake, shut up. You know, say clearly what you want. So this is how he threatens people. We've seen how many uh, of the enemies or, or people who oppose Putin have fallen out of um, high-rise buildings to their deaths. You understand the, the, the gravity is De- very... Defenestrated. <laughs> defen- you understand that gravity is very different in Russia. People accuse us I love Russians. that word. <laughs> it's the natural impact of gravity. We, we don't <laughs> murder these people. Then we send Skripal, you know, and, and Novichok, um, uh, uh, chemical mm-hmm. weapon, biological weapon, into England. That's the way this man thinks. He's isolated and he's more and more dangerous as a result, in my view. Do I think, despite his disclaimers, that he would use nuclear weapons if it becomes to a war between effectively NATO and Russia? Yes, I do, because he cannot afford to be humiliated because he might be overthrown, as unlikely as that appears. And I fear he might bring down the House of Cards. So what are the chances, Paul, do you think, of a wider hot war in Europe? We're already seeing things in the former Yugoslavian republics now. It it seems there's a lot of discontent everywhere as, as well. So there's social discontent and old wounds are festering. It's, uh, and, you know, Germany, uh, I'm just worried that this does not stay contained. You're right to worry. And we're, and we're right in our discussion to say it's even worse given the alignment of Russia and China. And just let me briefly go back to that. And that is um, your chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Pentagon have acknowledged in the last two or three months that for the first time in America's history, it now faces the prospect of two major nuclear armed powers simultaneously. That's the first point. The second point is, I mean, just going back to the first point. So if America is so preoccupied and the thing escalates between NATO and Russia, do you think Xi Jinping might think, wow, this is my time with regard to Taiwan? But going back to the risk, I think your country, I think Washington has been careful about not selling very long-range HIMARS weapon systems. We all know the HIMARS, which we've just ordered, by the way, this last last week, um, $1.2 billion of HIMARS mm. stuff. Um, and, and the public range is, you know, 399 kilometers. Oh, really? Um, that's a variation, I imagine, that goes to Ukraine. Uh, it has a range a lot longer than that. Um, and I think uh, despite the criticisms from certain quarters in Washington, about President Biden's view on this, it is very appropriate that he just watches what you supply um, to um, Ukraine. Despite, you know, the Western democratic world 
um, naturally supporting Ukraine, despite some of my criticisms that uh, Ukraine is not as democratic and free as we might think. That does not excuse Russia's bloody uh, in, total disobeyment of what it recognized as international borders. But you and I are not talking about that now. We're saying, what is the risk as the pressure comes on America? And you see the pressure right now is on Germany and the UK and France to supply main battle tanks. Poland. Poland, main battle tanks. Uh -huh. By the way, talking about Poland, uh -huh. anybody who knows, who's lived among Russians and so on knows that Russia sort of dismissed Poland as a pretend country. We know that is not the case, but the resupply from NATO of weapon systems through Warsaw to Ukraine, when will Putin decide he's going to start striking Warsaw? The distance from the western border of Belarus, which is a client state of Russia, let's admit that, the distance from the western border of Belarus, as a geographer I know this, to um, Warsaw is 180 kilometers. And is that about 120 miles? Something like that. Nothing. Yeah, those borders could melt away. Yeah, they uh, could. Under those circumstances. So we're really at a perilous time in Europe. And now shifting to the Pacific, you've said that Australia now faces the pro probability of high intensity conflict in your region. And Tokyo has definitely had a radical step up in its defense spending, doubling its defense spending. Kishida is here in the United States this week to, I'm sure, to, dis to discuss this. How, um, how do you see the Pacific and the risks there and the risks for Australia particularly? Without exaggerating, it's about the worst strategic outlook that we've had since World War II when Japan was knocking on our door in Indonesia, um, uh, Papua New Guinea and the Solomons and bombing Darwin in the north of Australia. I don't say that easily. It is a commonly accepted view now amongst our policymakers and the intelligence community. Um, the issue of underrating um, uh, certain developments uh, is coming back to haunt us. You know, we lumbered into this relation 50 years ago since we, uh, almost to the day, um, just this late last last month, 50 years ago, we recognized um, uh, communist China. Um, as you know, we've had this economic love affair. Um, so China is by far our biggest export market. Um, before China took that role, the biggest export market was Japan, followed by the United States. That is no longer the case. Um, I think our exports to China are equivalent to the combined exports we export to the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Don't hold me on that. I think that's about the order of magnitude. Mm. Mm -hmm. We supply China with 80% of its iron ore. We are the world's largest iron ore producer in the Pilbara district in the northwest of Australia. The iron ore content in the iron ore is 60%. You can almost take a, a blast of a torch to it, you know, a welding torch, and melt it on the spot. Um, so our dependence on exports has been allowed to go willy-nilly without any thought as to the strategic implications. Well, that has come back to haunt us. You recall... 
three, four years ago, China, for no reason at all, slams a ban on um, $20 billion US dollars of our exports to China, ranging from wine and lobsters through to coal um, um, and, and other minerals. But by the way, you did not, you will notice they did not put bans or limits on our iron ore exports. And I've explained the reason why. There is no other alternative supply. Right. You know? Now, um, our imports, mm -hmm. as with your country, everything you, you, you buy these days in Australia, manufactured goods, is made, guess where? China. Um, and we've put limits on their investment in our country. They're currently bidding for one of our rare earth companies in Western Australia. It's a small operation, a couple of hundred million dollars. I do hope that our investment advisory council will say no uh, to China. And of course, of course, we'll then go back to threats. Only two days ago, after the criticism of my very good friend, uh, Shingo Yamagami, the very first rate uh, Japanese ambassador by the new Chinese ambassador, um, I thought that was outrageous. They're lulling us into with our new government, thinking that, that there's been a reset. Let me stress, however, this new Labour government has not set a foot wrong from the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister on since the victory last May. Their foreign policy and defence policy statements are uh, bipartisan, and I think that is crucial. But it seems we may have turned the corner in relations with China, but I wouldn't bank on it. It doesn't take much for Xi Jinping to become arrogant. You know, he now proclaims, and you're much better informed than me, Merrick, on this issue. Xi Jinping proclaims the century of, uh, of, of humiliation has gone. This is China's time. This is our opportunity. And we all know, certainly in this town, that China's aim is to be the dominant power in the Asia Pacific. And we cannot afford to let that happen because life would become very grim. That's why um, we've just announced last week uh, $2 billion, as I've said, of HIMARS artillery and a particular Norwegian anti-ship missile, um, uh, which has a range of 185 miles. That is nothing. We should be doing what our Japanese friends and close ally are doing and ordering hundreds, if not thousands, of such long-range strike missiles as Tomahawk with a range of 1,800 kilometers, 1,200 miles. Tell us about the submarines. Um, the, it seems to me there's a very long road before those nuclear submarines that Australia has commissioned will be ready. Yeah. yeah. But that caused a, a lot of uh, problems with France, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, the whole of the new submarine deal has been handled very poorly, including diplomatically insulting, first of all, the Japanese, where our then Prime Minister Tony Abbott, a conservative um, Prime Minister, uh, told the then Japanese ambassador in Canberra, who was white-faced when he, the ambassador, reported this to me a few years ago, Paul, you won't believe this. I've just been to see your prime minister and he, Tony Abbott, wants us to build eight Soryu-class submarines. And I looked at the ambassador and said, what? I said, did the prime minister actually discuss with you 
where these would be built. Yes, they would be built in Japan. And I looked at the ambassador and said, with due respect, ambassador, and did the prime minister of Australia say to you, who is going to integrate into these submarines the Virginia class combat system and torpedoes? Because with our current submarines, the Cummins class, we are the only other country in the world than the United States to have the Virginia combat system in our conventional submarines and the ADCAP Mark 48 torpedoes. He said, no, that was not raised. Then that, that got um, uh, rubbished, and we turned our attention to France, who we think, you know, I mean, they make nuclear attack and um, uh, strategic submarines as well as uh, conventional submarines. And we changed our mind on that. So last year, when the announcement was made of AUKUS, I've lived in this town of Canberra the best part of 60 years in various guises, as you've mentioned, senior intelligence officer, senior defense policy officer, academic. After 60 years of living in a small town like Canberra, Canberra's only um, half a million people. But you can imagine people still talk to me. I still have contacts. You know, you meet you meet Jane or Fred in the supermarket. Jane or Fred, how are things? Paul, let me tell you. The AUKUS agreement was the only agreement in my 60 years in Canberra where there was not a leak at all. It was incredibly tightly held and an utter shock. It does make a lot of sense, but as you've implied, the current generation of basically Swedish-designed submarines, which we took from less than 1,000 tonnes to 3,300 tonnes, are very quiet diesel-electric submarines with the Virginia combat system and weapons. But they are slow. It's a long way from Perth in Western Australia to likely areas of operations in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. As you well know, nuclear submarines are super fast and virtually have unlimited range. The limits of range are only the temperament and survivability of the crew. Um, so we have a Her problem. Way. Yeah, we have a problem. And the view is, as you've mentioned, the bipartisan view in this town now is, we now for the first time faced since the Second World War, the real prospect of high intensity conflict in our region of primary strategic concern. Let me spell out what the bipartisan agreement is on that region of primary strategic concern. Because this determines our force structure, range, and um, uh, target acquisition. It is the Eastern Indian Ocean. Remembering we have a island presence at Cocos Keeling Island, 2,000 kilometers west of Western Australia. A, a base there which we're building will allow us, will allow us to project military power over the uh, 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 Malacca, Straits. And you recall how Xi Jinping is very sensitive about the Malacca Straits, through which 80% of China's oil is imported. We can project military power over that in combination with the United States. So Northeast Indian Ocean, the whole of Southeast Asia, maritime and continental, meaning Vietnam and Thailand, and the whole of the South China Sea, and the whole of the South Pacific, from Australia's eastern seaboard as far west as um, Fiji and Tahiti. 
For a defence force of only 70,000 people, that is a big ask. And that's why we need lots of long-range strike missiles, which is where our Japanese friends, as you well know, announced late, just a few weeks ago, are going. They're now talking about counter-strike missiles. Japan is. And I'm in favour of that. And counter-strike means, by the way, striking in retaliation the bases from which missiles are fired at Japan. Uh, this is a, a, a very dramatic change in Japan's relations, and we are lockstep with them, by the way. So will we, as you mentioned before we went on air, will AUKUS, which is the agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, become JAUKUS? Is that, do you think Japan will be an equal partner in that? It's got a nice ring about it, doesn't it? <laughs> I you you made it up. I'm going with it. <laughs> oh look, it's it's a term being bandied around. Uh, yeah, it seems that that's what's happening. Actually, in in fact, if not in name, right now, based upon what you're saying. Look, it started to look like that. Um, there have been some further and associated um, public statements, but not by politicians or officials. Uh, speculation about. Given we have a de facto alliance with Japan, we have a mutual access, a reciprocal access agreement, which has taken three years to negotiate. Um, let me um, just, one of the complications of that has been, what happens to Australian troops um, uh, stationed in Japan if a, they commit a serious crime? Japan has the death penalty, we do not. And that has taken one of the key elements to negotiate that, you can imagine, um, it's fixed. Um, uh, we, we have a, a, an agreement late last year, uh, signed by the two prime ministers, um, Albanese and Kishida, which says we will um, be uh, exchanging strategic assessments. Well, isn't that a nice code word for strategic intelligence assessments? You bet it is. We are going to be exchanging defense science and technology. Japan, as you know, now knows as its satellite photographic intelligence capability because you Americans denied it to them uh, in the early days, 10, 15 years ago, uh, with regard to North Korea's uh, military developments. Um, the Japanese have serious space rocket capability. We've invited them to use a place um, to the west of Alice Springs, the southwest called Woomera. It is the world's biggest um, land-based missile testing facility. Um, they are making, uh, the Japanese, the um, Raytheon United States SM-3 ballistic missile ship-based interceptor. Um, they are manufacturing that. We want to manufacture American missiles in Australia. We're at the early stage. We need to swap notes with the Japanese. Um, look, I could go on and on, but the final words in that agreement in December in Perth between the two prime ministers uses, I don't have the text in front, front of me, so forgive, forgive my, me relying on my memory. It says, the two contracting parties, in the event of a serious military situation affecting us, the two signatories to this agreement shall immediately consult. The last time that phrase was used was between the United States and Australia in the 1951 ANZUS agreement, which says, in the event of an attack, 
on any of the high contracting parties' um, uh, military and civilian assets, uh, aircraft and ships in the Pacific area, we shall immediately consult according to our constitutional processes. So you can see how seriously that Japanese wording is. It's not by accident, believe you me, that, that, that it's almost identical with ANZUS. Tells you a lot. That's where we are. So it does. So what what I'm gathering from all of this is that we're living in a more dangerous world, a world that's rearming, and that um, the alliances between various parties are getting stronger on, on both sides. That in a way we've pushed Russia and China together and that um, that the uh, AUKUS or JAUKUS, that that, um, uh, that alliance is bec- also becoming stronger so that the lines are becoming less distinct or more distinct rather. Yes, more distinct. these rival powers. Yeah. More distinct between these rival powers. So that really, it, uh, I have to say, you're not giving me a lot of consolation, <laughs> Paul, about how things might work out well. It's, it seems that I'm trying to look for a positive. And, and as you rightly said, this era, that, that past golden era where economics trumped politics is clearly gone. And now we're, we're back. It's good that that's gone. We, we miss that world. It was wonderful. Um, but it's, it's, it's not there. So, um, yeah, so we'll have to see what, what, uh, what are the, the key things in 2023 that you're worried about? Do you think, um, that an attack on Taiwan, which would be an attack on Australia as well, because of, as you mentioned, yeah. uh, of, uh, uh, of your facilities there on Pine Gap, yeah. you would be immediately involved yes. in that because that's where that would be. Yeah, uh, that war would be directed, right? So what are you watching for in 2023? America, I apologize for not having answered your question on Pine Gap earlier. Um, look, at the height of the Soviet Union and as a declared intelligence officer visiting that country, um, in the late 70s, early 80s, they said, in the event of nuclear war, we're aware of what your facility with the Americans is at Pine Gap, and nuclear missiles will fly in every direction, including your direction. That was the late 70s, early 80s. Six years ago, when I was in, last in Moscow, a colonel general, a rank that you and I don't have, it's one above a lieutenant general, uh, said to me in a closed uh, uh, discussion with uh, so-called academics, Paul, um, we are no longer talking to the Americans like we used to in the Cold War. Um, there is no longer intrusive inspections, including at factory gates of our ICBMs. Um, uh, America cancelled the ABM Treaty. America has cancelled the Theater Nuclear Weapons in Europe Treaty. America um, is about to cancel the Open Skies Agreement. We're not talking. And you Australians will find that nuclear missiles will be directed at you. And I said to him, ma'am, this is precisely what you all told me 20 years ago. There is no doubt that thanks to two American spies based in Los Angeles in the late 70s, Lee and Boyce, there was a book called the Falcon and the Snowman, about them. 
they were working for the American company in Los Angeles, which received what was then the tapes from Pine Gap. Uh, it was not real-time downlink in those days. It is now. Uh, so they received the tapes, and in between smoking marijuana and whatever else they did, they decided when they listened to the tapes, the, the Soviet Union needed to know this. So they took the tapes uh, to Mexico City and threw some of them over the wall of the Soviet embassy. I kid you not. And they did us enormous damage. The then, then CIA um, head wow. of the facility in Australia, my old friend Corley Bonus, said to me in the late 70s, he personally wanted to assassinate these two spies. It was, you know, um, so the Russians now know and have a good idea, and, so, uh, and through the Russians, so do the Chinese. So, yes, it's a undoubted target. There's nothing new about that. Coming back to Taiwan, the situation is, my personal view, let me stress, there's not unanimity on this um, in Canberra. The issue of Taiwan is, in the event that American troops are fighting Chinese communist troops across the Taiwan Straits, and Washington asks us to make a contribution and we decline, then I fear that that could mark the unraveling of the ANZUS Treaty. Why? Answer. Let's look at the other countries that, that will say no. No ASEAN countries will say yes. In any case, they don't have the capabilities. Our Kiwi friends across the ditch, New Zealanders, do not have the capabilities. The no Canadians, way. The Canadians, yeah. well, they're a long way behind us, military now, by the way, uh, a long way behind us. Then we've had Europe, you know, we've had in the last year, 18 months, and I'm not being critical of this, the British, the Germans, French sending a warship into the Pacific. Yeah, so what? If the balloon is going up in Europe at the same time, they ain't going to be coming across the Pacific. So it's us, and guess whom? Our Japanese friends. And... What sort of, I mean, Rich Armitage, you recall that dynamic former bullnecked um, oh, yeah. Vietnamese war, an old friend of mine, when he was Deputy Secretary of State, said to me in his office um, at the State Department, Foggy Bottom, several, many years ago, Deb, in the event the US Marines are goddamn dying across the Taiwan Straits, you'd better send your Aussie troops and bleed alongside us. <laughs> And I haven't forgotten that, believe me. Mm. We could send um, Judge Strike fighters. We could send early, early uh, airborne warning aircraft, which you manufactured for us. We could send the electronic warfare version of the F-18 called Growler. We are the only other country in the world to have the F-18 Growler in our order of uh, uh, combat. We couldn't send ground force troops. We don't have the number or the heavy armoured weight to do that. It would be a big issue. But most people I talk to in Canberra agree, if push ever came to shove, if we want the ANZUS Alliance to survive, we sure as hell had better be there. The question is what U.S. public opinion would be. You know, until recently, uh, conscription for Taiwanese young men was only four months. Yeah. And I did an interview with a KMT official and we talked about this. And then recently it's been extended, I believe, to a year because the thought would be if they're not willing to put their own, you know, their own young men on the, uh, on, in battle, why would we send troops? 
But, you know, it's a matter of political will, too. What would the Australian public, what would the American public consider doing? And even in Europe, the, there is no support for sending, you know, for having troops on the ground in Ukraine, even though I'm sure there are people there in advisory capacities, as they say. Yes. So I, yeah, I, exactly. I wonder what, you know, is a mother, is a mother in Los Angeles going to be willing to sacrifice her son for Taiwan? Look, I don't it's, know. It's a serious I don't question. Know how people are going to react to that. It's a serious question mm -hmm. you've raised, and I so I it's not just Australia. Mm -hmm. No, but you need to understand also that um, seventy-seven to eighty-two percent of Australians see the ANZUS alliance as critical to Australia's um, security situation. That hasn't changed in four or five decades. Uh, what has changed decades, is okay. That, yeah, what has changed is the seventy percent plus view that China is our most likely adversary. At the height of, you know, um, the, the growth in trade, particularly exports to China, that was not a view. That has now changed dramatically. And for what it's worth, most of the views on Taiwan actually can see or concede that it would be an important issue for our relation with America. You're right, however, about, you know, those four occasions I've been to Taiwan, as you know, a vivid democracy. You remember the sunflower movement when they occupied the parliament. Well, we ain't seen that, you know, in today's Ukraine. Right. Um, you, you know, that they have a vibrant economy. Is it they make 80% of the microchips in the world? They're ahead of the United States and certainly China in that regard. Um, but when you talk to their military, which I have, I mean, the warships they bought from you, I forget which class they were, the KID class or something, K-I-D-D, -D, that America offered to us and we said, go away, they've had it, you know. And then they've got F-16s, we've got joint strike fighters, for heaven's sake. Uh, we have some serious intelligence capability, not just Pine Gap, but by the way, we have our own defense science uh, organizations developed long-range over-the-horizon radar, again, based in the center of Australia, and which can see, and I better be careful what I say, it's highly classified, it can see clearly into the South China Sea and beyond, um, and which for targeting purposes is crucial. So, you know, the, the Taiwanese in comparison don't have a force comparable with our own moderate-sized force. The first time I was there when KMT was in power and uh, President uh, Ma was the president, you know, uh, PhD in law from Harvard, just like our presidents and prime ministers, not. Um, he got me to see his military. And look, they're nice people and so on. But it was all small scale stuff, even on Australian standards. And they got me and took me to Kinmen Island. I think, did we used to call that Kimoi Island in the 1950s, when the Chinese communists were shelling it day after day. It's 800 meters from the mainland of China, 800 meters. You can go to the artillery emplacements, you know, deep inside the tunnels and get a pair of binoculars and see China 800 meters away. Uh, you know, this is serious stuff. Yeah. So it seems that all of these potential conflicts that we're talking about, regardless of the kind of weaponry you have, that there are no winners in the end, especially if nuclear weapons are used. And 
I, I agree with something that you said in in one of your your uh, speeches. I, in a way, there is no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. There are only nuclear weapons, and this, you know, so it leads me to feel that you know diplomacy has died because all of these, in in spite of the positions people have, that really the only way out is some kind of negotiation, some sort of compromise, which is agreement by mutual concession, but the world's just not in the mood. Nobody's in the mood to do that. So this has been a very wonderful conversation, Paul. Thank you. Um, it's And I think it's realistic, um, even if it's tremendously sobering. It's the kind of, it, it, these are the issues that all of us need to be thinking about. So thank you for joining us today. And I, uh, what we'll do is we'll provide links to the speeches that you've made and articles, books, and so forth, everything we've talked about here. Um, Not One Inch is an incredible book. Uh, thank you for recommending it to me. And hopefully people, I think the only, the only thing that we can do, really, um, people who are, such as myself, not in policy positions, is just get the information out there. Get people to understand the reality of the situation in this kind of very uh, nuanced way that you've talked about. So thank you for sharing that with us. Lyric, thank you. You and I go back a very long way, and uh, I've missed your visits um, uh, to Canberra, and I hope we can this coming 12 months see you in Australia. I will make my best effort to do it. I miss Australia. As you know, I have a lot of friends there. And I hope you can make it to Chicago sometime too. Thank you to all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. And to receive notices of our upcoming podcasts, visit our website, econview.com, and please sign up for our newsletter. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you indeed. 